The kidney has a very special place in the heart. Oh, my God. Did he really? Yeah, he really said it. <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Oh, man. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI and Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV 102.3 FM. We're going to be talking about you, New Orleans. Stay dry, stay safe. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day. For your listening pleasure, on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, with this promise to you. That clip you heard from Donald Trump at the top of the show, correct me if I'm wrong, Desi Doyen, but the only time we will hear Donald Trump's voice over the next 58 minutes or so. Am that I correct? is correct. You're welcome. Right. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, coming up, however, and that was what, at a, 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 a an event for it kidneys? Was at what an was? event where he was signing an executive order to encourage the federal government to educate the public about organ transplants and find a way to speed up kidney transplants. Well, that's, that's good news. But uh, the kidneys have a special place in the heart. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, coming up, it uh, it sort of got lost in the holiday crush last week. But Attorney General Bill Barr, who has been exercising just unprecedented powers at the DOJ as Attorney General, uh, he has now granted himself even more powers when it comes to immigration and officially setting precedent on immigration law in this country. Last week, with without a comment period for the public, Bill Barr announced a new unilateral power that allows him to overrule immigration judges and uh, and the Board of Immigration Appeals with simply a stroke of his pen. We'll be joined shortly by Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute to explain that disturbing new news uh, that has gotten overlooked and a bit of slightly better news from the courts regarding immigration that also got overlooked in another disturbing decree that Barr tried to enact earlier this year just after taking office as Trump's personal fixer 
at the Department of Justice. That one, at least for now, has been blocked by the federal courts. We'll get to both of those matters and other pressing immigration and border concerns shortly. But first, uh, as we noted on our Green News report yesterday... Washington, D.C. saw a month's worth of rain in one single hour. I think that was Monday. I've lost track of the days already. (laughs) Yes, it was. Uh, Four inches fell, a a record in one hour on the same day that Donald Trump was delivering a speech to, believe it or not, tout his administration's horrific environmental record as he was flanked by two fossil fuel industry lobbyists, one of them who now heads the Interior Department and the other is the uh, chief administrator of the EPA. Uh, And of course, at no time during his speech, even with record flooding, flash flooding going on around Washington, right outside the windows in D.C., uh, at no time did Trump even utter the phrase climate change. But our climate crisis continues whether Trump denies it, buries the science on it, uh, produced by his own administration, by the way, and his own military, or whether he fails to say the words out loud or not. The climate crisis continues and it continues to worsen. It's still happening and it's causing serious problems Not just in D.C., but on the heels of those record rains and the flash flooding and the high water rescues in D.C., now this. A flash flood emergency was declared for New Orleans Wednesday morning when six to eight inches of rain engulfed the city, much of it falling over the course of one hour or two. Rainfall rates as high as six inches per hour were noted near the iconic French Quarter, But that's not the worst part of this story, unfortunately, as the serious flooding continues in New Orleans and elsewhere in the state. That may be about to get worse, much worse, with a potential hurricane now headed their way by Saturday. Desi Doyen, this does not look good. No, it's definitely not the best scenario. In fact, it has a strong potential of turning into a worst case scenario, especially for New Orleans levees. This is uh, Hurricane Barry, or currently Tropical Storm Barry, I guess. It could turn into a hurricane. It is projected to see, uh, the Mississippi River is projected to see one of its highest crests on record in New Orleans on Saturday as this Tropical Storm or Hurricane Barry moves closer to shore. The National Weather Service projects the river to crest at 20 feet, which is, by the way, the same height of the levees that currently protect the city. They are 20 feet high. The storm surge or rise in ocean water above normally dry land when Barry comes ashore could push several feet of ocean water up the mouth of the Mississippi, elevating the river level to a record breaking levels. Um, this is, And this is on top of already historic spring flooding season in the uh, central U.S. Because of that, the Mississippi River down at New Orleans uh, is already 16 feet high, just a foot below flood stage. But the projected surge of three to five feet from Barrie would then raise its level to 19 to 22 feet that would be two feet higher than the levees currently protecting the city. Uh, yeah, it's it's not a good situation. No, it's not and good. Uh, we're going to hope that the Trump administration and the city of New Orleans and the state of Louisiana are mobilizing and uh, pre-staging emergency equipment and supplies in order to 
be ready to respond to whatever is coming. The uh, flooding along the Mississippi could also be confounded not uh, co- compounded not just by the storm surge of several feet, but rainfall, heavy rainfall as much as 18 inches associated with the storm. And this rain on Wednesday hit before the storm had even formed. It, uh, right. Before it was even called a tropical storm, right. the storm rainfall is already flooding New Orleans. So there's there's really not a great scenario looking forward. It uh, shut down businesses. Uh, parts of the city government was closed. So, but by the way, that's not all. Before the flash flood emergency was issued for the city, a tornado warning was in effect. Water spouts were photographed above Lake Pontchartrain. I mean, this looks like a potentially, you know, frickin' apocalypse down there. Am <laughs> well, I? Hopefully, hopefully not. I'm wrong. Uh, hopefully, right. you're wrong. Hopefully, yeah. it won't be that bad. And uh, you it know. may not be. It may move, uh, according to uh, the uh, weather people here. The storm <laughs> track. Yes, it may move west if we're lucky. I guess uh, closer to Texas. Depending on where it makes rainfall, landfall, however, uh, Wednesday morning's torrent could be just the beginning of flooding problems in and around New Orleans, according to Washington Post. Uh, If it tracks well west of New Orleans, close to the border of Louisiana and Texas, the flood risk decreases. But if it tracks closer to the city, uh, well... Bad news. Yeah. So everybody buckle up. Buckle up down there uh, in New Orleans, uh, folks listening on our affiliate WHIV. Good luck. Stay in touch. All right. Let's see here. Where am I? All right. uh, Okay. Uh, Very quickly, uh, before we get to my guest, uh, during yesterday's show, news broke that a federal court had denied, at least for now, the Trump Department of Justice's attempts to replace all of the lawyers who had been working to defend the administration's attempt to add a question on citizenship to the 2020 census after the Supreme Court had denied Their reasoning as contrived, since it's actually meant to cause an underreporting on the census that would help white Republicans and harm Democrats and Latinos and other immigrant communities. So the Trump uh, DOJ had tried to remove all of the attorneys, the career attorneys, et cetera, who had already committed, who had already said, no, the given the Supreme Court news, we're going to go ahead with the uh, the printing has of the census has already begun as per the hard deadline that they had been arguing in court for months that this had to be figured out by the end of June. Well, uh, the federal judge late on Tuesday during this uh broadcast of this program, uh, the federal judge refused to let the Justice Department lawyers withdraw from this case. Uh, Eleven lawyers from the DOJ had asked Judge Jesse Furman of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York uh, for permission to step down from representing the government in the dispute. Attorney General Bill Barr had said that given the department's decision Despite what the lawyer said, the department's decision to press ahead on the issue anyway after the DOJ attorneys and those from the Census Bureau had all said they were going ahead with printing the census without the question on citizenship. Barr said, well, I can understand if they're not interested in participating in this phase, this phase where we make crap up to try to uh, ram this through no matter what the Supreme Court had to say about it. Well, DOJ officials said privately, according to NBC News, that Barr acted 
to remove them from the case before they could officially file their own objections in this case. He wow. just decided to remove them unilaterally, it sounds like. Nonetheless, Judge Furman said that before the lawyers can get off the case, court rules require them to explain why they wish to withdraw and that the DOJ request for it was, quote, patently deficient. That was especially true, he said, given that the legal briefs are due in a few days on whether the judge should issue an order preventing any action by the government to put the question on the form. The case has been litigated on the premise at the government's assistance that a speedy resolution is, quote, a matter of great private and public importance, Furman said. In fact, the uh, DOJ had insisted this case had to move quickly, and they even went to the Supreme Court to get a hearing on the case without going to the appellate court because the DOJ insisted that the printing deadline was a hard deadline. June 30th was the latest. They had to start printing by July 1, period. The lawyers said this over and over again about 15 different times in several different cases until they were rejected by the Supreme Court. And then the DOJ said, well, you know, we could start maybe in October instead. Well, as everyone is trying to figure out what's going on here and the judges are trying to figure out what to do, Judge Furman said that the government lawyers uh, could resubmit their request to withdraw, but they had to provide satisfactory reasons for the withdrawal and agree to make themselves available if they were needed at any future hearing. And so that was in just the one case. There are several cases against the, uh, the the census. This one is New York. Now another wrench has been thrown in to these uh, efforts to replace the legal team. The groups who challenged the question in Maryland federal court, they are seeking as well to block the shakeup of the attorneys there, where the judge in that case has ordered discovery on the claim that the question was added with a discriminatory intent. The Maryland plaintiffs made similar arguments as the uh, New York challengers did while emphasizing that the case is proceeding with a quick discovery timeline on the discriminatory intent claim. And the plaintiffs note that a wholesale challenge, a wholesale change, they said, of defendants legal team at this late stage at the, of the litigation creates an acute risk that discovery on plaintiffs equal protection claim will be further delayed and bogged down while uninitiated counsel for defendants try to get up to speed on the case. The Maryland challengers wrote this in their motion that was filed on Tuesday evening. They say, at a minimum, the challengers are uh, requesting a guarantee from the Department of Justice that it will not use the excuse of new attorneys in order to delay discovery production in this case. The challengers also want the court to, quote, require current counsel to provide a full explanation to the court why their withdrawal from the case is necessary and appropriate at this late juncture. Just like in the New York case, they are going to have to explain why it is that they are leaving this case. And, you know, some of them may say, I didn't want to leave. I, you know, was told I had to leave. Others could say, well, I, uh, I wanted to leave because they wanted me to lie about why we want to add this question to the census. So a bad ruling from a federal judge in New York on Tuesday against what Bill Barr is trying to do, a potential 
bad ruling lies ahead in the Maryland case on this for Bill Barr. But of course, who knows if any of this will actually prevent Bill Barr from doing what he wants to do, no matter what anybody has to say. He, he does whatever he wants as as the president's new personal fixer here. And he's even doing that now in advance of next week's planned public congressional testimony from special counsel Robert Mueller before Congress. House Democrats are reportedly attempting to make arrangements for two of special counsel Robert Mueller's deputies to appear for a private closed door testimony on the same day that Mueller is set to testify. That's July 17. He has been set to testify for two hours before the uh, House Judiciary Committee and then two hours before the House Intelligence Committee. And then there were supposed to be some closed door hearings with some of his deputies before both of those committees as well as the day went on. But now the Justice Department is reportedly instructing those two special counsel staffers, James Quarles and Aaron Zebley, to not appear for that testimony that apparently they had already agreed to appear to. According to new reports today in The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal, the DOJ's interference could well muddy the deal that the department and lawmakers had reached last month to get Mueller's testimony. While both former Mueller associates are no longer in the special counsel's office and the DOJ may not actually be able to block their testimony legally, Attorney General Bill Barr has already threatened in an interview with AP earlier this week that he would step in to resist any subpoena aimed at Mueller's deputies. So if they will not, uh, you know, if they if they demand that, well, we need subpoenas now, officially subpoenas before we will go in and testify. Barr is saying he will block those subpoenas. Now, why would he do that? Why would he block these people who produced this report, which Bill Barr told us exonerated the president in every measure? Why would he be now working so hard to keep these people from testifying? And by the way, testifying behind closed doors in private to the uh, committees at the U.S. House? Well, I'll leave that to you, but uh, that's what Bill Barr does. And he does what he wants. And ain't nobody other than maybe, maybe the court's going to stop Bill Barr from doing what Bill Barr wants. Uh, Democrats apparently will not exercise their power to impeach this guy or anyone else in this administration for reasons that I still do not understand. But if Bill Barr is willing to do this sort of thing on high profile matters like blocking the members of the special counsel's office from testifying to Congress, even though he had said, oh, Bill Barr, uh, 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 Bob Mueller is welcome to testify to Congress. If he's willing to do that now, imagine what he's willing to do with his power to personally control the entire immigration court system. Well, you don't have to imagine that. That story is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So by now, I will assume most of our listeners have seen, heard, or read about the horrific, overcrowded conditions in a number of immigration detention centers on the U.S. southern border with Mexico. Every day, it seems, we, we hear new horror stories of children and adults locked up in rooms with three or four times more people than the rooms are actually built for, many of them forced to sleep on concrete floors, often with little more than a foil blanket, sometimes not even that. Uh, as NBC News reported on Tuesday in an exclusive, uh, they found allegations of punishment by Customs and Border Protection officials of, yes, children and, yes, sexual assault alleged by at least one young teenage girl in one of those facilities. We've seen photos of the terrible conditions at many of those facilities coming from the inspector general uh, who was looking into these facilities uh, at the DHS, where children are still being separated from their parents, denied soap or toothbrushes, which the administration has actually gone to court to defend as safe and sanitary conditions. And, of course, reports of untreated and contagious illnesses spreading throughout the overcrowded facilities, not to mention news of deaths of both children and adults that continue to trickle out as immigration lawyers are allowed to interview some of the thousands who are being held and uh, share their stories that many have, uh, leading many of those attorneys to describe the, these uh, conditions as the worst conditions they have ever seen at such facilities many of which are now being described as concentration camps. But why? Why have these conditions gotten so much worse than in previous years, years in which there were actually more migrants crossing our border? Why has it only become a humanitarian crisis, seemingly, now, under the Trump administration's management of the system? Well, back in April, then newly confirmed Trump attorney general and fixer William Barr picked up on former attorney general Jeff Sessions's cruel policies like zero tolerance that separated children from their parents after the families had turned themselves in to seek asylum. After crossing the border, Sessions had also decreed that asylum would no longer be granted to individuals who were claiming domestic abuse or threats of gang violence back in their home countries. But Barr seemed to be looking to make things even worse when he came in, at least when it came to the already existing problem of both adjudicating asylum claims and the overcrowded conditions in the various holding facilities for those who had fled violence and poverty and, yes, climate change in their home countries by traveling thousands of miles, often on foot with small children, in hopes of finding the American dream here. In April, Barr unilaterally announced a new policy that would 
bar asylum seekers who have already demonstrated a credible fear of return to their home countries to immigration officials from being allowed to seek bond for release until their asylum case could be heard. The process would keep such individuals in detention for months and even years, according to Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute, who joined us at the time on the broadcast to explain Barr's pronouncement back in April. That, despite an already existing lack of space in detention facilities, which had led to the so-called catch-and-release policies that the Trump administration had long decried. Well, on that measure, at least, I think we've got a bit of good news today. Last week, according to The Hill, a federal judge blocked the order from Attorney General William Barr that stated certain asylum seekers can be detained indefinitely. U.S. District Judge Marsha Petchman in Washington state wrote that it was, quote, unconstitutional to deny asylum seekers a bond hearing while they wait for their asylum claims to be processed. The attorney general's April order had written that those who had successfully demonstrated a credible fear and are sent to full deportation proceedings cannot be released on bond, a directive that overturned a ruling by the Board of Immigration Appeals back in 2005 that found asylum seekers could be released on bond if they are able to exhibit that they have credible fear of persecution or danger if they leave the U.S. Well, we will call that uh, court ruling for now the, the good news for the moment because the day before that came out, as the San Francisco Chronicle reported, Barr continued the process of granting himself seemingly greater and greater and more expansive powers as he has done since taking office in a number of other areas as well. But here he did so by moving forward with a new regulation changing the way immigration courts handle appeals, expanding the ability of those courts and the attorney general himself to issue decisions that bind the way all immigration judges must decide cases in the future. The immigration courts are separate from the federal judiciary. They exist entirely under the control of the Justice Department and the attorney general. The lower immigration courts hear immigrants' arguments as to why they should be allowed to stay in the U.S., and then they decide whether they should be deported or not. But appeals of those decisions are then reviewed by the Board of Immigration Appeals. Now, under current law, those decisions remain unpublished and thus not binding on the entire system unless a majority of all 21 members of that Board of Immigration Appeals votes to publish those decisions. According to the DOJ, that results in fewer than 30 or so decisions being published each year as precedent. But the new regulation put in place last week by Bill Barr creates another way for a decision to become binding. The attorney general himself, in this case, Bill Barr, can simply order it published, allowing the attorney general and the attorney general alone to shape all immigration judges decisions by selecting which appellate rulings will become binding precedent and which ones will not. Joining us once again today to explain what all of this means is Sarah Pierce, immigration attorney and policy analyst for the U.S. Immigration Policy Program at the Nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute. Sarah Pierce, welcome back to the broadcast. 
Thank you for having me. First, on the horrific and, and overcrowded conditions we've been hearing about, uh, seeing uh, for many weeks now, uh, have you witnessed any of that firsthand? And, and has the exposure of those conditions, to your knowledge, helped to ease or improve the conditions that these uh, migrants, including thousands of children, have been have been suffering now for so long? I have not experienced it firsthand, but we've certainly had a slew of reports coming out about the dangerous overcrowding mm-hmm. at the southern border. Um, and and yes, the, we have heard reports that some of these conditions and that overcrowding specifically are starting to be relieved, um, especially as arrivals of immigrants at the southern border decreases. Um, and certainly the government is also under uh, a court injunction mm-hmm. to relieve some of these conditions, at least in Texas. So I think they have a due date, actually, just in, cu- in a couple days to, to update the court on what they've done to improve these conditions. So we expect them to Im- improve. You mentioned there are fewer uh, people coming in right now. Uh, any idea why that is? Is that due to these cruel policies, which uh, the Trump administration has said, you know, they wanted the world to see to uh, deter uh, people from coming here? Is that why there are fewer people coming in? Or is it just because it's the hot summer months, it's harder to travel, etc.? Any idea? Yeah, I highly doubt it's due to the deterrence from these overcrowding conditions. I mean, that's been this this administration's strategy from the beginning. Mm-hmm. They want to decrease the number of migrants arriving at the southern border, and they want to do it by deterring them through these really harsh policies. Obviously, that hasn't worked so far because we're seeing unprecedented numbers of asylum seekers arriving at the southern border. Instead, I would think that the the decline is due to the harsh summer months. You know, we usually have a seasonal decline, especially this month. Mm-hmm. But it's a significant enough decline that we think it's also on account of the increased enforcement that's happening in Mexico mm. due to the agreement between um, the Mexican government and the U.S. government just a few weeks ago. Is it, in fact, good news, as I described it, uh, is it good news that Bill Barr's April decree that asylum seekers, uh, even after demonstrating a credible fear of return to their home countries, that his decree they could only that they could be held essentially indefinitely without a bond hearing, that that has now been blocked by a federal judge? That seems like good news, but is it a permanent decision or is it just a temporary injunction for now? It's definitely good news, but it is just a temporary injunction. Um, so we still need this case to be fully adjudicated. The federal court even stated in their opinion that they expected it to be appealed right away, and I would expect the same. So we'll probably see this go up through the ranks. Uh, the next step would be the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then after that, the Supreme Court. Now, how much of the overcrowding, these conditions that we've seen at these facilities, how much of that is due to just failure by the DOJ or Homeland Security or the uh, Customs and Border Patrol or ICE, take your pick, the immigration courts. Uh, how much of that is a failure to move uh, folks through the system? And how much is just simply due to an increase in the number of people now coming here to seek asylum? I know that it had been uh, we've had larger numbers in the past, and I'm, I don't recall these kind of uh, reports of these horrific conditions. So how much of this is a failure of this administration versus just, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers now coming in? Sure. We definitely can't put the blame entirely on this administration. It's true that we've had higher numbers of arrivals in the past. So right now we're on track for about 900,000, maybe a million arrivals this year. 
Our high water mark is the year 2000, in which we had 1.6 million apprehensions at the southern border. Mm -hmm. But there's a big difference between that high water mark and what we're seeing today. Those 1.6 million apprehensions were largely single adult males from Mexico who were easily turned around and pushed back across the border. Today, we have unprecedented numbers of families and unaccompanied children arriving at the southern border, in addition to asylum seekers. And this is more than any prior administration has had to deal with. We all talk about the summer of 2014, Mm -hmm. when we had tons of unaccompanied child migrants arriving at the southern border during the Obama administration, we're actually going to have more unaccompanied child migrants arrive at the southern border this year than have ever before. But we're talking about them significantly less than we're talking about families because there's even more families arriving. Mm. So this administration really is dealing with an unprecedented crisis. That said, they're not dealing with it particularly well. We've had a spike in these numbers since at least last August, Mm -hmm. maybe October, Um, And we haven't seen a lot of action on the part of this administration to prepare for this crisis and and move people around and and ensure that they have enough detention facilities. Um, And that's what's causing this overcrowding at these border facilities that were never meant to house anyone and certainly not children for long periods of time. Why are we seeing this influx? Uh, Is it uh, is it crime? Is it climate change? Why are we seeing these kind of uh, these kind of numbers now as you see it? It's due to a confluence of a a bunch of different factors. Mm -hmm. So we certainly have push factors from the home countries, bad economic conditions, violence, uh, and uh, just general political instability and corruption. We also have transit factors, the rise of the caravans over the past years um, that has allowed more people to travel, but also the rise of the caravan caused smugglers to kind of look at their business model and, and reassess and offer migrants more options and even safer options to come to the United States. Then we have pull factors. The U.S. has a really tight job market right now. That's certainly a huge pull. We have a very outdated asylum system that allows people to enter the country easily-ish if they're able to to pass an initial asylum interview. Mm -hmm. And we also have an administration that is uh, creating urgency in the minds of migrants that they need to arrive right now. This administration keeps implementing these very harsh start-stop policies at the southern border, such as family separation, that makes migrants think they need to arrive now. Mm. When Family separation ended in the summer of 2010. It was followed by a slew of record-setting months of family arrivals at the southern border. I think that smugglers in particular are pointing to this administration's actions and their rhetoric, such as threats to shut down the southern border. Mm -hmm. And they're telling migrants, you know, if you're interested in going, the time is now. You've got to go before before the next hammer comes down. Wow. So their own, uh, the the way Trump is dealing with it it, in and of itself is encouraging people to get here soon before the policies get even worse, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, wow. Uh, now, to Bill Barr's uh, sort of power grab here, uh, at least as I see it, allowing him and, and him alone to unilaterally decide which cases that are heard by the Board of Immigration Appeals would become binding precedent. The, uh, the, the San Francisco Chronicle reports that this new regulation was originally proposed during the George W. Bush administration, and then it was revived again under Donald Trump. Do you have any idea what happened to the original proposal under George W. Bush and why it never became an official new regulation uh, at that time during the Bush regime? Did they reject that policy, as far as you know? 
I don't know, but it, but under the Bush administration, it did go through notice and comment. So mm-hmm. they proposed the regulation, they received comments, and they even uh, read through all of those comments during the Bush administration and then decided not to go forward with the regulation. So this is actually a series of quote-unquote zombie regulations that this administration is digging back up from prior administrations mm. because these regulations were previously introduced and previously went through notice and comment, this administration doesn't have to bother with that process when they're publishing the final regulation and implementing them. Um, So it's a bit of an alarming trend uh, because usually there's a little bit of public participation in the regulatory process, but in this case, the public participation already happened, so this administration can go ahead and implement these provisions. So they can say, this already happened, we already went through the legal process years and years ago, we got our comments, doesn't matter that the other administration decided not to move forward with them, we're looking at those same comments, and we decided, yes, we're going to move ahead with this, and we don't have to bother to get new comments, even though we're talking about, was what, you know, 10, 15 years ago? That's right. That's exactly right. Wow. Can you give me some sort of uh, sort of ge- generic example, Sarah Pierce, of, of the sort of decision that we're talking about that would be made by the appeals board uh, without receiving a majority to publish it, but which could then be published unilaterally by bar in order to become binding precedent? What sort of decisions are we talking about at that level that that uh, folks are concerned about? Sure. Well, they they really can be any decisions, which I think is what is so alarming about this. The Board of Immigration Appeals issues about 30,000 decisions each year. Mm. So under this new regulation, the Attorney General will have his pick of whatever issue he wants and, and, and really whatever slant on the issue he wants when deciding whether or not to make some of these decisions precedent. So, for example, it could be a decision on um, the definition of an asylum seeker under the under a a difficult area of law called particular social group. Mm -hmm. Um, It could also be a decision on what kinds of crimes make someone deportable from the United States. There's uh, there's the possibilities are really endless when he's uh, has so many decisions before him to choose from. And uh, before this, before this went into place, actually, I think it goes into place uh, like 60 days from uh, after it was declared last week. But uh, before that, it would require a majority of the 21 member board of appeals. Is that correct? Is that accurate? Yeah, I believe that is right. Yeah. So now you got one guy making this decision, and would those decisions uh, by the AG uh, selected for publication to become precedent? Would they become precedent not just for this administration, but for uh, immigration policy moving forward, even under future administrations as well? That's right. They'd they'd be effectively law going forward. The uh, San Francisco Chronicle says uh, reports that giving attorneys such unilateral power without requiring that they solicit input from parties with a stake in the outcome could undercut a fair pro- uh, process. That's a, uh, a quote from uh, Laura Lynch, a, a policy advisor at the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Uh, she went on to call this new rule a grave mistake. Well, I guess first, do you agree with uh, with Laura Lynch there and... Who would be the parties with a stake in the outcome in these cases that she's referring to? In other words, who should be consulted first before these cases are turned into precedent by the opinion of one man named uh, Bill Barr? 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree. This is a huge problem with our immigration court um, that we have this political appointee who's in charge of effectively the legal well-being of our immigration system. That's a that's a huge problem and a huge conflict of interest. Um, the attorney general already has a certain Supreme Court-like power over the immigration court system in that he can refer any final decisions from the BIA to himself, review those decisions, and issue a legal opinion that effectively changes the law. That's what he did in the case that you were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. related to whether or not asylum seekers can get bond hearings. And in that process, at times, the attorney general will allow uh, any parties who are interested to write into him and, and try to argue one way or the other. So I think she was referring to, to the idea that there should be some sort of process to allow any interested stakeholders, mm-hmm. uh, whether that be immigration advocates or people who um, feel less friendly towards immigrants, to, to write in and, and contribute their thinking on, on what the legal outcome of these cases should be. That procedure actually isn't required in the Attorney General's referral and review process, and there's always been a lot of argument that it should require that, um, that the Attorney General should always be soliciting feedback from the public before making these serious changes to our immigration legal structure. I, I want to pick up on a, a reference you made there, uh, comparing Bill Barr to sort of the Supreme Court when it comes to uh, immigration, uh, except... It's even sort of it seems like it's even more final than the Supreme Court in that, you know, the Supreme Court at least has nine people on it. Bill Barr is just one man and the Supreme Court generally won't make a decision until they do hear from uh, stakeholders and the interested parties. Uh, This guy can do pretty much anything he wants without. Well, is there any recourse uh, for an immigrant who is, you know, denied by the lower immigration uh, judge, then denied by the appeals board, and then by the attorney general, can they appeal to a real court of law, which these courts are not? I'll get to that in a moment. But uh, can they take their case to a real court of law as opposed to, frankly, what sounds a bit like a kangaroo court, at least as it's now being run? Yeah, at, at times they can. And, and that's what we saw in the case of this. Um, issue related to bond hearings for asylum seekers, right? Mm-hmm. We actually have this push and pull between a federal court in Seattle and William Barr. The federal court had ruled in early April that asylum seekers uh, must be granted bond hearings. Two weeks after that, Barr ruled that, no, that wasn't true, that they're not entitled to bond hearings. Now it's bounced back to the federal court in Seattle, which has uh, issued this injunction saying, no, William Barr, we're putting your your opinion on hold right now, we're going to continue granting uh, bond hearings to asylum seekers. So the federal courts can operate as a check on Mm -hmm. the attorney general in this case, but um, uh, that doesn't always work out. The broader question, I think, uh, that's raised here is why are these immigration courts controlled by seemingly one person at the Department of Justice. I mean, shouldn't the immigration courts, and I don't think people understand that it is separate from the actual judiciary system. These are actually appointed. Fo- do, 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 do these immigration judges go through any sort of uh, congressional uh, confirmation hearings or any other sort of, uh, you know, approval process like that before they're seated as immigration judges? No, they do not. So there's definitely been serious issues in the past with um, administrations appointing judges uh, and considering their politics as they as they appoint judges, because there really is no check on that appointment process. 
it's one of the many ways people are concerned about our immigration court system just being, you know, too political, uh, considering the serious matters they're adjudicating. Are there any requirements? Do they have to be trained lawyers or anything like that in order to be immigration judges, or can these just be straight political appointees? That's a good question. I know that there are um, requirements around it, but but I'm not sure. I'm not familiar immediately with what those requirements are. And are there any? And I mean, because it's just kind of amazing uh, in in talking about this, because we you know we hear about these cases, and uh, you know there's a, a million people backlog uh, trying to go through this uh, process, as I understand it. But these are not real judges. These are immigration judges, and I don't even know. Is there any sort of is there any oversight, like congressional oversight, independent oversight? You know, what happens if there is an incompetent or an unfair uh, immigration judge or one who misbehaves? Who oversees that? Uh, who oversees them for removal? Is that also left up to one man, the attorney general? Uh, you know, and again, it can fall on the federal court system. Uh, and we have a lot of opinions coming down from the federal courts of appeals uh, really chiding immigration judges, saying that they, they weren't actually looking at the cases, that they aren't familiar with immigration law, different things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that, that limited opportunity to appeal to federal court, but that's really the only check on these very politicized courts. So is it a dumb question to ask why aren't they, why isn't this a part of the uh, judicial system rather than part of the executive branch? If there was in the judicial system, it seems like there would at least be some sort of checks and balances um, rather than, I mean, I don't even know if you know the history of this or or how we got to this place where we're appointing these judges uh, in the executive branch, it seems like it ought to be an independent body. Am I am I wrong? Am I crazy about that? No, you're definitely not crazy. And, and for decades, there it, there have been calls to make the immigration court independent um, and outside of of the powers of the mm-hmm. administration. Um, but unfortunately, if you think about who the constituents are that this affects, um, mm. they're not voters. Yeah. So we haven't had a lot of. Uh, political motivation to, to follow through with those those calls. There is, as I uh, mentioned, about a million migrants in the country, I guess, awaiting final hearings. Uh, Sarah Pierce, A, do most of them show up for their hearings when they finally get one? And B, why are there so many? What should Congress and the White House and the DOJ all be doing to uh, more efficiently and fairly adjudicate these cases in a timely manner, uh, presuming any of them actually want to? What what would be the solution to the problems that we are seeing here? So you're right. There are just over 900,000 cases that are waiting for their hearings, and there's been a lot of debate about whether or not migrants show up to their hearings. Unfortunately, recently the head of DHS said that 90% were not showing up to their hearings. I do not think that's very accurate. Um, But there are many different ways to measure how many people are showing up to their hearings. Um, Looking at the immigration court's data, um, it's actually helpful to look at older data because cases in which immigration immigrants don't show up Mm -hmm. actually move much faster than those in which the immigrants are showing up and arguing their cases. So looking at cases of immigrants who are released, who are not in detention um, from Back from 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. about 70% show up for their hearings. So mm-hmm. it is a majority that are showing up for their hearings. 
As far as ways to kind of solve the due process concerns around this, um, certainly making the immigration court independent of the administration would be a fantastic step. But I think a, a smaller first step would be giving these immigrants true access to counsel and providing them counsel. Um, when in cases in which immigrants have attorneys are go so much better than those that that don't have attorneys. Uh, that the chances that they show up for court are significantly higher. The chances that they their case is ultimately resolved in a positive way. That they get the immigration benefits to which they're entitled uh, increase drastically. So providing counsel would would be a really fantastic first step. We we don't do that now. I mean, in the criminal system, you're you're entitled to a public defender if you don't have one a, a, of your own. We don't do that. We're, the, these folks are allowed to move through the system with with no attorney whatsoever if they can't afford one or don't already have one. That's right. Um, legally, we say that they have to have access to counsel. I mean that they have the opportunity to bring an attorney to the immigration court with them, but the the U.S. government does nothing to provide that wow. them with those attorneys. Wow, I hadn't realized that either. All right, last question for you, uh, Sarah. Should we be expecting, will there be a, a lawsuit challenging Barr's new regulation, granting himself these new and extraordinary powers to set precedent by publishing selected his own selected appeals board uh, decisions. Is that something that is uh, suable? Uh, has, has, a, has a lawsuit already been filed, as a matter of fact, following his announcement last week? So I have not heard that a lawsuit's been filed, or I haven't even heard talks of, of people preparing for a lawsuit, mm. but I would expect one in the end. Um, so many of this administration's immigration policies have been successfully challenged that I'd be very surprised if this one went by without a challenge. Yeah, this was sort of a story that kind of got lost, it seems, uh, along with everything else, but certainly over the holiday, the holiday week, 4th of July and so forth. And that was one of the reasons I kind of wanted to raise this because it, this seems extraordinary. We're seeing uh, Bill Barr giving himself a lot of powers, not just in immigration, but in all areas of what he's doing at the uh, at the DOJ. That's something that Republicans used to hate the idea of. Uh, but now they're not so uh, concerned about it, after all, it seems. And so we wanted to help get it out there. Sarah Pierce, policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. As ever, I really appreciate you joining us and, and uh, helping me understand these policies because I, I don't think I'm alone in not really understanding what goes on at the border and through this entire process. And you make a good point. It's because the constituents here are not voters. So we just don't hear a lot about this. So I really appreciate you helping us to uh, make more sense of it. Yeah, of course. Anytime, Brad. Thanks, Sarah. You can get more information on the Migration Policy Institute, of course, at migrationpolicy.org. And you can follow them on the Twitters at Migration Policy. All right, quick break, and we are back with some uh, so some election news today. Oh, not witty. not presidential election news, Even however. Better. I know we need more not presidential election news. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com slash donate. 
Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Yeah, maybe you can guess where we're going Blue here. Moon up, Kentucky, keep on shining. Yes, please do. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. For all the attention that Democrats and the media are giving to the presidential contest, it sure would be nice if they, meaning both the Democrats and the media, but yes, the Democrats, if they spend as much time worrying about winning back the Senate uh, or else it really doesn't matter if a Democrat wins back the White House with Mitch McConnell set to prevent anything and everything, including Supreme Court confirmations from going through as long as he is in control of the upper chamber of Congress. I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. It does matter. Even if Mitch McConnell and the Republicans control the Senate, uh, it really matters whether Donald Trump is removed from office or not. Uh, but it'll make a much bigger difference if Democrats control both the Senate and the House. And on that front, we got a small bit of good news, or at least news today. Amy McGrath, a Marine combat aviator who narrowly lost her House race to an incumbent Republican in Kentucky last November, she is now setting her sights on a more formidable target, as AP News describes it. Senator uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell McGrath, whose campaign announcement video in her House race showcased the viral power of social media to raise money and her own national profile, said on Tuesday that she will be trying to defeat one of the most entrenched officials in Washington, D.C. That would be Mitch McConnell. But she sees him as vulnerable because of his lengthy tenure in D.C., his stance on health care and his taut allegiance to the policies of President Donald Trump. Here is Amy McGrath's campaign introductory video. I was 13 years old, and I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I sat at this table, and I wrote a letter to my senator, telling him I wanted to fly fighter jets in combat, to fight for my country and that women should be able to do that. He never wrote back. I'm Amy McGrath, and I've often wondered how many other people did Mitch McConnell never take the time to write back, or even think about. A second generation steel worker who found out his mill is shutting down, leaving no jobs behind. A woman suffering from diabetes who fears losing her health care and coverage for her pre-existing condition. A coal miner, forced to retire by black lung disease, who's looking for someone to offer more than words. A student, who can only afford college as long as she can get her federal loans, and has no idea how she'll pay off the debt. 
Everything that's wrong in Washington had to start someplace. How did it come to this? That even within our own families, we can't talk to each other about the leaders of our country anymore without anger and blame. Well, it started with this man who was elected a lifetime ago and who has, bit by bit, year by year, turned Washington into something we all despise, where dysfunction and chaos are political weapons, where budgets and healthcare and the Supreme Court are held hostage, a place where ideals go to die. I'm running for Senate because it shouldn't be like this. I learned as a daughter, a mom, a Marine, and a fighter pilot that the mission can never be forgotten, that protecting our democracy requires courage, that our freedoms are never assured, and the best way to lift someone up is a job. The challenge of today is inside each of us. How do we reconcile our belief in basic human decency with our anger at those who block progress at all costs. There is a path to resetting our country's moral compass, where each of us is heard, and we can become, once again, the moral and economic leader of a world in disarray. But to do that, we have to win this. Good luck. That was uh, Amy But it was a very Amy powerful yeah. video, yes. Yeah. Uh, she is 44 years old. She will uh, be able to raise a lot of money, it is believed, to challenge McConnell. But Kentucky has not elected a Democrat to the Senate since Wendell Ford in 1992. Nonetheless, her decision to enter the race is a rare victory for Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer, who has had, for some reason, difficulty persuading top-tier talent in other states to take on incumbent Republicans with control of the Senate at stake. He has worked he worked hard to get McGrath into this thing. Several other would-be recruits, including former Georgia House Minority Leader Stacey Abrams, she declined to run for Senate down in Georgia, and others like former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, who's running for president, former Texas uh, Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who's running for president, and Montana Governor Steve Bullock, who's running for president, all passed on Senate runs in order to run for president for some reason, because I guess the, uh, the Senate is just not cool enough for those dudes. Well, I sure as hell hope one of them ends up winning for president, because otherwise I'm going to be really ticked off if... Uh, if Democrats don't retake the Senate majority in 2020. If Democrats don't uh, get it back, yeah, because of these people who aren't running. Anyway, good luck, Amy McGrath. We got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute, and for all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. As ever, my thanks to those of you who keep us going by supporting our work at bradblog.com slash donate. We would not be here without your help. So thank you in advance. Good luck to the folks down in New Orleans. Nicole Sandler is in for us tomorrow. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.